Welcome everyone. We will be starting in a minute or two. We'll let folks continue to enter in and then we'll start. Okay, my name is William Edelglass, and I'm Director of Studies at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies in Barry, Massachusetts, which is on land stewarded by the Nipmuc people for countless generations, many of whom continue to live in this area, and it has traditionally been called Nipponet. And on behalf of BCBS, I want to welcome everyone. Good evening. And I'm just going to start with a preliminary announcement. If you are interested in this program tonight, I want to let you know that Tim Ream, who is a Buddhist environmental activist, will be offering an online course here at BCBS starting later this month titled Practicing the Dharma as Earth Activism. And his course will <clears throat> address two overarching questions. There's a link in the chat if you want to look at it. One is how does the practice of liberation inform activism to benefit the earth? And how can earth activism become the practice of liberation? So it's a course that will help people, can help people become engaged as activists. And the second program that I wanted to let you know about is coming up in a few weeks. It's a residential program led by David Loy, who has been thinking about Buddhism and climate destabilization for a long time. And you can find that information on our website and in the chat right now. If you um, would like to have closed captions tonight, if you look at the bottom of the Zoom screen, it says, there's a button that says live transcript with a little CC above that. You can press that button and you'll get a live transcript. Mm -hmm. And to give you a sense of the flow of our time together, <clears throat> after a brief introduction of Tanisara, she will lead a short guided meditation to settle in that we're gonna have a conversation about the Dharma and the climate crisis. And then we will invite questions from participants and conclude with a brief meditation. If you have a question, you can put it into the chat function on the Zoom screen, the Zoom button down below. And there may very well be more questions and comments than time to address them all. And sometimes some of the questions will be combined and we ask for your patience if your question is not based or presented exactly how you may have worded it. And at any point, if you are having any technical difficulties, feel free to send an email to contact at buddhistinquiry.org and 
a bow of gratitude to my colleague, Julia, for making all these logistical processes work so smoothly. And um, brings me great joy to introduce Tanisara. If you find yourself in the circles that I find myself in often, you may be familiar with the feeling that arises in a room when you mention Tanisara. She has a very special place, a kind of reverence that is reserved for her which only a small number of teachers have. And so I'm really honored and pleased that Tanisara is with us tonight. Um, in part also because Tanisara is one of those teachers who has all the classical traditional training and is also wholeheartedly devoting herself to responding to the climate crisis in a really inspiring way. She started her practice in the Burmese tradition of Ubakin in 1975 and spent 12 years, I believe, as a nun in the forest tradition of Ajahn Chah. <coughs> and for three decades now, she has been facilitating and leading meditation retreats all around the world. She also did graduate work in mindfulness-based psychotherapy. With her husband, her partner, Kitisaro, she is the co-founder of Dharmagiri Sacred Mountain Retreat in South Africa, and also <coughs> Sacred Mountain Sangha in California, which some of you may know runs a two-year training program that many of my friends rave about. Tanister has also authored several books, including Time to Stand Up, an Engaged Buddhist Manifesto for Our Earth, The Buddha's Life and Message Through Feminine Eyes, Listening to the Heart, the Contemplative Journey to Engaged Buddhism, and the Heart of the Bitter Almond Hedge Sutta. So thank you so much for joining us, Tanisara. And before we start our conversation, I would like to invite you to offer a brief guided meditation to settle us in. Thank you, William. Thank you so much. Thank you for the warm welcome. Greetings, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, let's just take a few moments to arrive more fully. So uh, just feeling the ground beneath us, wherever and however our body is touching the seat or cushion or uh, feet on the floor. And it's really nice to make um, bring into awareness that sensation of contact with the earth and feel that point of contact, the sensation there, which is more neutral, usually grounding, connecting. And as we do that, just allowing a sense of dropping through the body so that the earth is supporting us, softening down through the face, the jaw, dropping the shoulders down through the torso, softening the belly, down through the arms, hands, legs, to the feet. So there's just this overall awareness of the sensation of our body. And of course, within that, we feel the rhythm of breathing, which may also be an a rhythm that you can bring into your awareness and helps us to slow down to the slower rhythms of the body. 
If it's helpful, taking a few slower, deeper breaths, which helps regulate our nervous system a little, soothing, calming, slowing down. And feeling a longer, slower inhalation, suffusing breath and awareness through the body and the brain down through the torso, whole body. And on an exhalation, just releasing from this subtle and deeper holding uh, so that we don't, uh, we allow ourselves to just release from what we don't really need to hold right now. And just put the to-do list, the next thing on the shelf and pick it up later. But for now, arriving, grounding, slowing down, connecting, establishing presence here with how it is spaciously, kindly, patiently. And as we do this, we can just bring an intention, a word or a phrase into the heart to support us right now. This is a really obviously central discussion, and yet it's also quite challenging and potentially activating. So just bringing a quality of heart quality of mind, quality from the deeper somatic awareness of our embodied knowing that we can bring forth that's positive, that's supportive, that's connecting us together as a group here, concerned, passionate and interested in doing what we can at this time, at this moment rooted in our practice. And we can breathe that word through the body, through the cells, the body, the blood, the bones, that phrase, the energy of it, Suffusing the whole body. And then before we begin, extending that out and offering the benefits of this to all, wherever it's needed, connecting it with your intention, offering that to all, all beings at this time.
Okay, thank you so much. Thank you, William. Thank you, Tanisara. As I said in my introduction, you've been practicing for almost 50 years, and which I take to be an indication of a wise elder. Um, and that included more than a decade as a nun in the forest tradition, Rajan Cha. And um, I was wondering if you'd be willing to start talking about some of your earlier engagement with Buddhism prior to the climate crisis, prior to the climate crisis becoming really an important element for you, what you think of as Buddhist practice? Uh, yes, of course. I mean, that does feel, I mean, it both feels a long time ago, historically, but as one ages, funnily enough, the past, almost becomes more vivid <laughs> so it lives in you at such deep levels and when I first came across the Dhamma was probably when I was 14 actually and um, I spent many lengths of time in our local library um, because actually I wasn't very good at making friends at that time at school <laughs> So I would, you know, I know I was, I would go into the adult section of, uh, that where, where kids weren't usually allowed in those days, you know, at 14, you were still like a kid. And, um, and I found these books on India and yoga. And I think that was my first real connection. Because then I went home and announced to my mum that I was a vegetarian, in fact, and <laughs> we didn't have any yoga teachers. So I started teaching myself yoga from this book. But um, that, so that really, I think, was my first induction into some connection with Asian um, spirituality. And that really, um, within, you know, by the time I was 18, I had, um, through a whole series of connections really and the way that my life moved I had entered my first retreat and in those days it what first washed up on the shores of Britain were the 10-day retreats that came out of um, Burma, Myanmar and um, they were taught by Uba Kin of course who was the teacher of Goenkaji, Ruth Dennison, Robert Hoover, John Coleman and that, you know, I can see this older generation here. Some of you may have uh, started with some of those teachers. And um, Uba Kin was a very unique, he was a, unique in that he was a lay person that brought what was um, traditionally just kept within monastic trainings. He brought that out into the lay community. He was also the attorney, attorney general. Um, oh, no, I'm sorry, maybe some kind of, um, that's an American. <laughs> he, 
he was he was some kind of um, administrative uh, high up in the government, anyhow. But he actually um, taught his workers and his people, paid them to come and do retreats. And then gradually other teachers came, Goenka, and the first teacher that I met was um, John Coleman. So this retreat was outside of Oxford at a large center that had been bought by a Burmese family that were political exiles. It was a, a large estate. They were obviously wealthy and they bought this um, and turned it into a meditation center. So it was my first experience, and I, I really found it difficult because it was so strict. Um, and we listened to the tapes of Goenka in the evening, and I sort of understood, watch your breath. <laughs> that was probably the, the one thing I got from 10 days of what felt quite torturous. But somehow I was captured by, by the whole endeavor and landed up doing many, many retreats, which led me to meet eventually Ajahn Chah, who came to this center. And I remember we were, we were all quite young and ambitious and wanting to get enlightened. And I remember sitting at the end of one of these retreats and through the doors of the front, we were in these sort of like Nissan huts at the back, at the back of this stately home, they built these evacuee, an evacuee camp for children from the second world war. And they never deconstructed those huts. So that's where all the meditation was happening. And in one of those huts, there were 70 of us. I mean, there's a lot of from all over Europe. And one day at the end of this retreat, through the front doors of this hut, walked Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho. And they, they seemed a very unlikely couple because one was very short and rather squat. And the other one was really tall and lanky. But the, 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 it was the, the sort of quality of vibra the vibration or the, you know, what they, they, they just felt like they'd come from another planet. And I was completely, absolutely struck by their presence. And the first thing Ajahn Chah did was he kind of looked at all of this, looked at us all sitting there. And we had, we didn't really, I didn't even really know I was doing Buddhism, but there was this, there had been this Buddha uh, Rupa, this Buddha statue and we had just sort of shoved it on in the corner because like, oh, there's this Asian thing. <laughs> and Ajahn Chah, he saw this and he picked it up and he put it on a table in, the, in essential, essentially. And then he got down and he bowed. So my first teaching from Ajahn Chah was this bow. And I, I really felt at such a deep level that this was a perfect statement in relationship to life. Was the, and I'd not really seen such a bow before, or anyone bow, I don't think, in my culture. And it completely, it was, it was really a profound transmission, actually, such a simple gesture. And so then I went to listen to him, and um, I was just, you know, he had this expression, stabbing the heart of his <laughs> to-be disciples, and definitely I had that experience. I just felt very clear that he had a deep sense of knowing and eventually I followed him out to Thailand and he encouraged me to become a nun and I was about 22 at that time and I thought well I um I better go and tell my family I'm going to be doing this so I came back to the UK and at that time they were starting the first monastery which was near the meditation community I was living in, hosting these 10 day retreats in West Sussex in the UK. 
And I went over there to see what it's about. And then I didn't leave for 12 years. And that was Chithurst Monastery. It was a very, at that time, this was the first monastery in the west of that lineage. And um, the land and the house that they bought, the English Sangha Trust, which had been set up in 1956 to bring monastics over. It was all rather ramshackle and run down. So it really was like living on a building site. But we were doing this very intense monastic schedule. It wasn't adapted really from Thailand. We were just doing what, what they were doing in the Thai forest. I mean, it gradually over years, it all adapted in all sorts of ways. So, so it was very rigorous. You know, it was like, you know, getting up at four. I mean, it was a bit later. They get up at three in Thailand, these long days, um, one meal a day, and then these all night sittings every week on the moon days. So there was a very rigorous schedule. It was very simple. It was very honed down. It was completely sort of um, renunciant in that everything was geared towards this simplification. And, um, you know, and meditation, meditation, discipline, the schedule. And a lot of it, there was a lot of sleep deprivation, <laughs> cold, working out working out and building this thing and and you know in a way it was a very happy time but you know gradually our community wasn't very sophisticated in understanding community dynamics and social spiritual dynamics so you know you know problems arose and so on but there was the but what I really appreciate about that time and if I if I was to capture the trans the the overall transmission I received from that, it was really the establishment of what I might call right view from Ajahn Chah and then followed on by Ajahn Sumedho, which wasn't a, a particular view obviously, but it was really that the practice was extremely transportable. It wasn't about, you see, I'd picked up this idea before that it was about a very internal, enclosed, still, silent atmosphere, dependent on a perfection of a technique, really. And so I was sort of, you know, and Ajahn Chah just really kind of blew that apart. And, and even the idea of progressions. And so um, his, his um, and from his teacher, Ajahn Man, it was really bringing everything back to the mind in a particular way of contemplating, is there an experience of dukkha here? <laughs> and using the experience of dukkha, which of course is an everyday experience in whatever context you're in, and then tracking that back through the Four Noble Truths, what's giving rise to this dukkha? What are you grasping? Um, where do you need to let go? And can you taste the peace of letting go, letting be? So this, this was the deep template and in a way, it's sometimes seen as quite a simplistic teaching, but of course, it's actually extremely profound. So that actually, because I experienced a lot of dukkha in the monastery, you know, and then and my usual strategies for dealing with that weren't working. So the monastic life was, a was the technique, really, because it would push you to the point of, of either you shift your understanding or you're going to leave or you're going to get really upset you know so and um and start blaming everyone so so there was this enormous pressure and you couldn't really make it up you'd actually land up he would have this this saying if you're up against the wall and you can't go up you can't go down you can't move any which way 
then the practice really begins. And, you know, when I think about where we are going with our conversation about climate, I feel that's where we're getting to at a planetary level. <laughs> you know, we, we, can't, we, have to, we have to shift something much more fundamentally, fundamental than, fish, you know, changing the furniture. So this for me was the great wisdom of Ajahn Chah, was his, his establishment of it's all workable if you have the right relationship and have the frame of the practice to contemplate how, you're, how you, how the mind is generating this extra suffering and then trying to change the conditions of the world to make the world what you want it to be instead of actually shifting inwardly to be able to work with how it actually is. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for giving some sense of your background. Um, in the essay you wrote for the BCBS Insight Journal, A Dharma Heart for These Times, you talk about Ajahn Chah and his approach to the Four Noble Truths. And you then transition to the idea that we have to look at what's directly in front of us with regards to the climate. It resonates a lot with something Joanna Macy talks a lot about that the most important thing we can do is kind of face up to what's really going on in this world. And I'm wondering if you wanna say a little bit about how you think of the Four Noble Truths in the context of looking at the climate crisis. Uh, yes, well, you know, it's obviously not necessarily a frame that people are looking at life through because a lot of the momentum of our sort of everyday culture is geared towards doing whatever we can to avoid the experience of dukkha. Um, whereas in the practice, you actually train yourself to meet it and look at it and open to it and use it as a doorway through contemplation to not only the ending of dukkha, <laughs> through releasing our grasp, and uh, but to really also looking at, at skillful solutions, you know, so um, what is actually going to work to respond to this experience that isn't generating more suffering. So in that, there is a great template and possibility for whatever we're looking at, whether internal or external, and, you know, in the foundations of mindfulness, we're training that, you know, the, the, the training is to apply mindfulness, not only internally, but externally. And I understand that literally to mean <laughs> to the world, you know, to the conditions of the world. You know, I know there's many different ways of um, interpreting the, the sutta, but so we look at the, when we look at, look at what's happening, we really need to look factually scientifically and and even you know what we can experience directly um the actual what's actually right in front of us and it's a very very hard thing to grasp i mean it's one thing to look at your irritation as dukkha because things aren't you know you're waiting for something that isn't happening a phone call that someone should have called you that's but it's another thing to look at a planet that's actually spiraling into a into a death spiral directly caused by the way we're living and um, to really grasp the enormity of what we're facing 
is is emotionally and psychologically it's almost like we're not really wired or equipped to do that and we you know we can see by the enormous levels of denial and distraction and um, extremity ex that's going on almost like a psychotic mass psychotic break from reality um, that it's that we haven't really got the wiring but I do think the Dharma gives us that wiring it gives us the 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 capacity and I think this is what Ajahn Chah is a capacity at that moment and you think I can't take this to actually breathe and stretch and take it <laughs> and and to stay with it you know and you know I, I you know but you have to remember that in that training to do that you know often we particularly in the western model we think of ourselves as an individual meeting all this but you know when you live in a, that kind of monastic style the way Ajahn Chah taught it it was very collective so you're working as a sangha you're working with deep practices of devotion, of chanting, of da daily practices. So these will kind of reinforce and give strength and also a level of you know, equanimity that hopefully isn't just like going to, uh, well, why should we care? Because it's all whatever, illusory or it's all going to burn up everyway. But the equanimity that can is a realistic understanding that you know, we might not win through this situation in the same way that you look, that we will not win through death, you know, we can, this is something we're going to go through. So in a way, this, this contemplation is, is of the four truths of dukkha is like facing a death, you know, it's facing a personal death, the death of the world that we've known to be. So you, I think what the four noble truths in its subtler place and where it really leads to is, is and what the Buddha was, was, I think, really focused on was that, is there anything beyond death? You know, if there's not, then it's really a scramble. So to actually, you know, in the Thai forest school, the, the turning to this, like this deathless heart or the jitta or the unconditioned, which are all words for the indefinable um, transcendent immanence of the innate nature of heart, mind, jitta itself. And so when there's a taste of that or a leaning into that or an alignment with that, then it, it actually gives a deeper refuge from which you can then meet what is actually unbearable to meet. And it allows you to understand that whatever we're meeting, the heart doesn't have to be crushed. It doesn't, it, at some level, it can't be tainted or crushed. It's, you know, it's unassailable. So, and this is the heart that the Buddha appointed for us to realize, this unshakable heart. And so this, you know, with the four truths, it leads into that realization or opening or tasting and then that helps us really, it's actually quite a joyful place because we realize that actually not only can we not meet the unbearable, but we can meet it with actually something that can be whatever way anything goes, <laughs> regardless of the fact we're actually going to be physically dying, regardless of the fact that we will be losing a lot, an enormous amount of the world we've known, which is absolutely heartbreaking species and rivers and already happening that we we can actually sustain an inner sense of whatever we feel whatever way that's impacting us 
at a deeper level, we can sustain this durable, uh, unshakable, timeless heart. You know, this is a deeper and more imminent reality we can bring to meet. So for me, this is, these, these, there's just so many Dharma jewels in this frame of the Four Noble Truths and then the deeper unpacking of that, of the wheel of dependent origination that starts to really allow us to realize that this wheel of suffering is also a condition for liberation. It's not just suffering, suffering collapse. Suffering conditions liberation, conditions the path, conditions a way of inquiring how do we move on and, and out of these, these old patterns, these old stories. The difference is that we're not just doing this for ourselves or in our community. We're looking at, we're take, taking that same lens and looking at, uh, looking at this huge picture of, of the world in, mul- in, a planet, in a multiple planetary crisis. And the fact is, it still applies. This practice still applies. You know, you don't need... You know, we don't need sort of necessarily new practices because they're there to help us navigate this territory. But the other difference is I don't think that we can actually, this is not a solo journey when we look out and look at the complexity of what we're facing and the the urgency and the enormity of it. This is something that we need to actually put our minds to together to look at how do we how do we build that path for these times that allows for resiliency, liberation, compassion, engagement, and as the Buddha taught, reaching out for the welfare of all. You know, this is part of the, you know, the Buddhist shtick. You, you know, it's not just about the Buddha did it. You know, like he hung around and kind of worked with all sorts of problems for the benefit of turning the wheel onwards, you know, so... So it's all there, really. It's just a question of applying the medicine. And this frame, you know, like I, I, you know, the whole book, Time to Stand Up book, and to some degree, the book Kilisar and I wrote together, the underlying frame of it, though it's not necessarily transparent to a reader, is the structure of the four truths, naming the problem, diagnosing, diagnosing and naming the problem, looking at the causes looking at the possibility of liberation, then what do we do about it to bring about that liberating um, result, results? Thank you, Tanistara. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit more about what you just characterized as a difference. So maybe it's similar to um, the life in the monastery many people tend to think of Buddhist ethics as about our intentions and our individual intentions. Um, I think we probably can agree that with the climate crisis, we've reached a point where intending to have to be a, have a vegan meal or intending to buy an electric vehicle or intending to put solar on the roof that these individual choices and individual actions are not adequate. What we need is um, regulation, legislation, international agreements. Essentially what we need is collective action. And I'm wondering if 
in this context where collective action is necessary, which you write about in your essay that you published for the Insight Journal. <clears throat> I'm wondering if our understanding of practice and Buddhist ethics changes in a world where to respond to the needs of the world, to respond to those we are called to relieve their suffering requires certain kinds of collective action. And I'm wondering what you would say about that. Yes, I, or I think you you really you're really hitting the core of where the you know where the friction is <laughs> um, is translating all of this into actually um, action at all levels. You know, it, it it doesn't necessarily mean to be on the streets, but to kind of metaphorically or actu in actuality to be on the streets and to bring forth um, and to apply, um, you know, smart pressure, uh, which, in, which also means political pressure. And it's, it's a very, it's one of those conversations that, that I actually really question, like, well, we're not political, but, you know, in the, in the monastic life, we never voted. And there was this idea we're not political, so we can be open to all people, regardless of their persuasions or classes. Or So I understand that, but in a certain way, the Buddha was political. I mean, he engaged the systems of his time and challenged them. And clearly it was very threatening to, to the order of the day. So when you talk about systemic action, what you're talking about is upsetting the order of the day upsetting business as usual and not just a personal endeavor of as you say I'm just going to green up my life but actually I think we're all waking up to the fact that we have to have a systems change as is said rather than a than you know absolute climate change but really climate destruction you know so so this does this does actually challenge us this is quite challenge because challenging but it's not without precedent it's not without precedent within the dharma it's not without precedent within spiritually orientated activism and um there you know where 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 our practice can actually bring a lot to how we do the activism rather than separating people out more through anger and adding more to the hatred but, you know, and this is a deep challenge because there's much that evokes and a lot of reactivity and a lot of division now. But what is the what is the way and the energy that we bring to action and what actions should we undertake? You know, so, for example, we're coming up to a very ex extremely important election and there are in the midterms here in the US and there are quite a few growing groups that are looking at a Dharma, you know, getting the Dharma vote, getting the vote out as a Dharma action and finding that fine line between, um, especially if like we are uh, working from a nonprofit basis, you can't actually promote candidates, but you can, you can get behind. This is like a sacred civic duty. It's not something that it's, you know, there's nothing to say that lay people or monastics, actually, I know some monastics that do vote, that there's nothing to say that we shouldn't be engaged in this activity. So to change even the, the mindset around that, like we, from we don't get involved in politics while we leave the political body then to be less guided by a wise or compassionate consideration, which impacts more vulnerable communities, 
to this is a civic duty and it's in the dharma to fulfill i mean there's many sutras around this <laughs> to fulfill our civic duty and you know and then how can we support that so you know finding ways which are very allowable for us to do to apply political pressure to question the buddha you know challenged and questioned um unethical practices so there's a precedent set he tried to stop wars he didn't always succeed but he tried so you know we can look at you know what's happening the fossil fuel it's a it's it's being driven by this addiction to power and greed you know so and you know to this is why i think we need to put our creative hats to thinking hats together and hearts together to really consider what is the what is an optimum way to bring pressure like for example i think bringing supporting something like ecocide law to have to have companies that 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 desecrate land that that go in and um, decimate um, first nation people's um, communities and not only first nation but lands here um, to actually to get behind the many initiatives around making this part of the rome statute as a crime against humanity on the level of genocide and so you know there there are ways that there are probably many lawyers in in the dharma world and if not lawyers then we can get behind funding we can get behind joining up we can get behind putting ringing up senators or whatever um there are so many on so many fronts there's so many initiatives the young people out there on the streets you know striking for friday school strikes or sunflower or you know to to actually get out on the streets with them <laughs> and you know so this is what i'm really interested in and and to actually feel i think even more deeply than what do we do i think it's changing the mind's mindset to to say that actually right action this is part of right action and it's what we should be doing as an expression of our dharma practice at this time and so that everyone finds their level and edge to engage but i think inwardly to actually i've had to do this and i think many people have to you know there's this sort of almost like this good internalized good buddhist persona where you don't say much <laughs> you don't you know you you don't get angry and you don't you're very quiet and measured and skillful in your speech and that's great and i'm not suggesting we all get sort of raging raving angry and certainly not ex- expressing outward anger is not necessarily helpful but to feel enraged at the destruction of the planet is is an immune system response and to actually say yeah how do we then distill that into clear action you know how do we and feel off all the opposite fear and collapse you know how do we work with those feelings um to actually help uh us find our voice you know find our 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 passion for our love for this beautiful beautiful world and this extraordinary exquisite nature and 
and and protect what we can. So I, you know, I I don't see this outside of the Dharma. It's just how do we reframe our understanding of what the Dharma is is calling for us to do, you know, in the same way that it called the Buddha to, um, you know, when he was wondering what to serve, that he realized after his awakening that just to sit there being an awakened being, you know, that he, he one that he's like one that has nothing to serve lives unhappily, you know, it's, it's great, you know, but how do you then to fulfill, to fulfill this journey, he realized I serve the Dhamma, you know, I serve the Dhamma. Well, this is serving the Dhamma, it's serving, serving all beings, it's serving the Dhamma. So anyway, so I'm just, you know, like waffling a bit here, but it's, it's a question of reframing and, and not that Dharma last just thought, it's not that the Dharma practice is fixed in historical time, it's an evolution, it's an evolving expression. <laughs> according to time and place. This is what I understood from Ajahn Chah, you know, that it's not fixed. So the essences of and principles are fixed, but the expression and how it's translated has to be in relationship to the need of time and place. And there has to be then that wise guidance of its application. Yeah. Thank you. Um, one of the things that strikes me in your work, Tanisara, is that often when you are writing about or addressing really painful things and also really beautiful things that you turn to poetry <laughs> and that <clears throat> poetry is a way in which you sometimes express what is most important and what's what is most meaningful and I'm, I'm wondering if you would like to share a little bit about the role of poetry in being a for you for you being a buddhist climate activist about facing the reality and how painful that is and simultaneously holding in our hearts which is something you've been emphasizing tonight what is joyous, what is beautiful, what's the source of joy that we love and the, the role of love that, um, do you wanna say anything about that? Yeah, I think it's a really lovely question because beyond my own particular personal ways of expressing, trying to express something that's, it's really a journey beneath the cognitive way that we, that we uh, frame the world. And then the, the, the sort of patterns of the cognitive tend to be a little bit limiting because it's connected often with a discourse that sort of goes around the same tracks. I think the movement of art is to break that fixation of the cognitive um, project, the, the way that the cognitive frames project and normalizes the world and our internal and external world and 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 subtly within that what what's what we accept as the world and agreeable and all of that was expressions of art music poetry theater um it sort of breaks that mold and allows for the unexpected from the liminal from the intuitive from the 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 embodied knowing experience of of the body and the and the sort of sort of 
from the psyche, from the archetypal, it allows that, it allows like a different current of not only expression, but of a way of framing reality that often can capture something a bit more essential, a bit deeper, a bit more real. And it can juxtapose, like in poetry, you can juxtapose seeming opposites in one line without having to write three paragraphs. You can just put a few different words and it can, it can sort of bring something that feels a bit counter, counterintuitive together. And your mind has to kind of like, you know, move open, but it also can meet, you know, I mean, some poetry can be a bit laborious and boring, but sort of, you know, like some good poetry can really like just capture that essence. And in the same way that art and music can do this as well. And I think that's why you see a lot of climate movements like Extinction Rebellion, for example, and the, many of the youth movements using a lot of theater, poetry, um, and um, art and music and so on to sort of bring in, yeah, it's a way of breaking set. And, and so much is so, the, the rational dominance in our culture, the, the, you know, the sort of machinery of our culture almost has sort of dehumanized us a little. You know, it's, it's you know, you hit Amazon, get what you want, pack it. You know, there's all these sort of like and people working there. They're like an extension of the machine. And, you know, so you start to see human beings as part of this extended function, we're just functions. So when you hear someone expressing their heart through poetry or singing something, or it, it just reminds us of the vulnerability that we have as humans. And so I think there's, this is another way of challenging the systems that are killing us <laughs> by bringing these ways of expressing ourselves. And, and in, in, in the Dharma, often we don't have those means. I think Dharma cultures historically do, but there's this slight feeling of, you know, let's not do music, let's not dance, let's not, <laughs> let's not do it, you know. So I think there's a lot of to explore around that, you know, can we bring these other artistic means of expression and sharing? Um, Poetry is a sort of fairly safe one because most people, you know, there's a lot of, there's a huge lineages of Buddhist poetry and haikus and which is, you know, goes back thousands of years, you know, Buddha himself often spoke in quite poetical um, metaphor. So. One thing I really love doing on retreats, um, Stephanie Kaza and I were just doing a retreat at BCBS on climate change and climate justice is inviting folks to set up a little altar, mm. um, little nature altar somewhere in the woods, just with leaves, stones, and um, it feels like a very basic practice that one can do wherever one lives, um, even so in an urban area in a park, um, and just tending the altar each morning it's a little bit like the poetry. It invites one into a different space. I love that. I love that. I yeah. We used to do. I remember in the, as a kid doing that a lot, and and also, it brings that sense of um, sacredness to to nature, to land, to you know, to the. And I, I think again, Buddhism has a lot of you know, like you know, if you travel in Asia, a lot of these 
beautiful shrine, tree shrines, and, um, you know, or like in, back in Ireland, there's a lot of statues to Mother Mary, which were obviously previously in areas that were previously uh, pre-Christian sites, and, and yeah. you know, um, you know, a sense of unseen worlds, a sense of this aliveness, not a mechanistic view of nature, but the sense of it's an alive, conscious, interactive, participatory way of being in relationship. And which is something that I think we also need to reclaim in this discussion we're having, it's, it's sort of almost like the ground floor of the, of the process of engaging a new world, a new way of being here with nature. Yeah. My own view is that the spread of Buddhism was actually the spread of Buddhist environments, that wherever Buddhism spread, there were rituals, narratives, myths, practices that made the local environment in India, as it spread in India, in Southeast Asia, Tibet, China, Japan, Korea, that made it a sacred space as a Buddhist environment. Beautiful. Yes, and each unique and beautiful. Yes. So we are at a stage um, where we would be happy to invite um, questions and um, there's already been one question, and Tanisara, speaking of being engaged and possibly angry, can you speak more about your article? Um, don't worry, um, get angry. Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> God. Yeah, that, well, that firstly was not my title. And thank you for bringing that up because that was quite, quite a challenging experience because it was a piece taken from the book Time to Stand Up and was published in Tricycle a number of years ago. And the opening line was something like, um, sometimes as Buddhists we get shamed for expressing anger. And I got a, a tremendous amount of pushback on that. And I thought, I'm sure I didn't, that isn't something I, I, I actually advocate as a teacher. So I looked back on my book and it actually said, getting shame for experiencing anger. I just didn't catch it when I was proofreading, but that shift from <laughs> experiencing anger to expressing anger, actually kind of, I got completely trolled by that on social media and, and you know, like, it was, I wrote to them and said, I actually, <laughs> and I didn't hear anything, but that's the sort of danger of uh, like, um, both as an author, you have to be very careful to proofread your stuff, obviously. <laughs> and also, you know, I don't know whether that was a deliberate mistake or what, or they're just going for something a bit more edgy. But what I, my point in that particular piece, which was in the middle of a book, which is that, it, that there is a lot of shaming which I think of actually the experience of anger and in the Buddhist world anger is considered a very negative emotion for very good reasons because it, it can really burn you up and if you act on anger look what we've just seen all these horrific shootings you know it's it's devastating but however psychologically and in, in your embodied experience, experiencing anger 
is part of, you know, it's complex, it's a complex emotion, but it can also be positive in that it's indicating that there is a transgression of your boundary. You know, it's, it's almost like your immune system when you're invaded. Um, the point is, as a practitioner, is what do you do about that anger? It's not that you're experiencing in it and, and then suppressing it and shaming that experience. It's a bodily reaction often, and you know, but it can be very layered from your own psychodynamic history. But when you feel that, it's, it, it's important to just take note rather than just sort of bypass it and try and be nice and pretend you're just a nice Buddhist. It's like, actually, something's not right here something's not right here and I need to address it. And something very creative can come out of that if one actually learns to work with anger and really consider, you know, I need to either say something, I need to push back here, I need to change set. And so at that point, I think we can get a more fluid reaction, a relationship with anger and translate it ever more, more fluidly into a skillful response. And so, you know, when it comes to the planet being destroyed, when it comes to the water being polluted, when like, for example, the, you know, in my home country, there's a massive amount of deregulation happening. <laughs> so they're literally just pouring sewer into, uh, you know, raw sewage into the rivers. <laughs> you know, these beautiful, you know, rivers that for that, that, that they're being destroyed and the fish and, you know, and it, an appropriate feeling is to feel angry about it. It's not just go, oh, well, it all passes and let's just let it go. It's no, <laughs> no, this shouldn't be happening. No, there should be like a really strong no, you will not do this. <laughs> and I'm going to do something about it. It doesn't mean to say that you have to go and rant at some, some official, but it's to think strategically. How can I transform this energy into strategic action? That was my point about that article. It wasn't don't worry, get angry at all. <laughs> but you actually do lose a lot of control sometimes from when you submit a piece to actually what gets published. There was a second question from my good friend, Tara Doyle in Atlanta, who I used to work with. We used to run a Tibetan studies program that Tara directed for many years in Dharamsala. And Tara was pointing out that in the US and in Europe, the climate movement is often predominantly white. Hmm. And some of her black students, not surprisingly, find that problematic. And there are some folks who, some um, BIPOC Buddhists, such as Ruth King and Conda Mason, who have written about climate change. And Tara is wondering who and what else, and can this view and on the ground reality be changed? And as she points out, obviously she's talking about the West. West scholarship putting quotation marks because it's a problematic concept and uh, not in Asia. I want to say a couple things. There actually is someone I was on a panel with from Atlanta, the former pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, a guy named Gerald Durley. He and I were on a panel on uh, climate change and climate justice from a religious perspective. And he's, he does a lot of work on this. And the other person 
you know, William Barber, Bishop William Barber II, his son is William Barber III. I think he um, is also relatively close to you in North Carolina. He um, is in charge of climate and environmental justice at the Climate Reality Project. Um, and amongst Buddhists is what Tara is really wondering about. Um, Tanisara, do you want to say anything? Yes, I am. Um, yes, well, you know, obviously this has deep roots into the whole colonial worldview, colonized worldview that we're in, where white supremacy is the dominant worldview. So there's many many things when you're in, in a white person you just don't actually really see <laughs> in a dominant when you're in a dominant culture so there is a training around you know um, seeing more than we usually see and the impacts of our lifestyles and the history and so on and and then making reparations making you know like um, working to to support and make visible people and um, people's situations. I think in terms of the Dharma, the Dharma, there's been like for the last, well, I've been involved more proactively in the development of the diversity, um, equity and inclusion focus of centers since probably about 2008, when I was invited to join CDL4 as one of the co-teachers. So that was began my sharper learning curve into the US story around this journey. But I think there's been an enormous focus on, on race itself, you know, uh, undoing white supremacy and race, but that hasn't necessarily translated consciously. And then how do we apply this to climate? And it was almost seen that climate was sort of, you know, like pushed a little bit to the side if you'd bring that in. Um, so I think it needs another kind of round for centers and for us all to think about how do we now broaden that out because we're now all and you know it, it is it is actually the case that often BIPOC communities are historically more grounded and deeply um, embodiedly ancestrally knowing of of what it takes to be a um a, a movement that's coming up against a, an unfair and unjust system. So I see that the BIPOC community are often really more like um, our guides. <laughs> and I think there's a difference between like just trying to populate your movement if you're white, you know, because you suddenly need some BIPOC people. Um, from that to actually seeing that um, people from the BIPOC community are historically ahead of the game and that you are actually learning from them. So for me in the, in the Bay Area, I, I've really been very shaped and impacted and also having gone to Standing Rock for a short period of time, but by particularly the indigenous um, way of approaching activism which, and from some of the women that I've had a relationship here to, to in the Bay Area around um, activism is, is, is seeing it really as a sort of, um, as prayer and, and prayer as a prayer and ceremony, deep, 
as, a, as an act of activism in, in itself. And that activism is a prayer and a ceremony. So I think this non-splitting between the spiritual and activism is one of the profound gifts from the indigenous community. And then the sheer resilience and power uh, from the African-American community of years and years of coming up against <laughs> the exhaustion of a system that is so diminishing of their, of their, of their rights. So I think we, first of all, white people can read a lot. I've, I, you know, read of our history, become really familiar with colonialism and historic, the historic um, realities that we're living here in the U U.S. and what it's built on. And you know, it's also the case that it's okay for white people to have. <laughs> we we're actually the white people is the place where we need to to wake up. I, we wouldn't be having if I had a discussion in a BIPOC community these questions and this way of talking, it would be almost like, well, you know, we're like, they're like about three light years ahead, you know, <laughs> this wouldn't really be, you know, um, the discussion. So I think it's, th these are discussions that are happening primarily in the white communities because we do have to come up to speed. And I think it's all right to actually also say we have a slightly different need at this moment as white people and, this, and that need is for us to work and figure out ourselves um, what we can do to support BIPOC communities and what we can do to wake ourselves up and get more on the front lines to get behind what they're doing, <laughs> you know, rather than trying to just populate um, and, you know, tokenize BIPOC people. So those are the ways I'm thinking about it. But I, I have to confess, I'm not particularly clear. Um, I haven't got a, a solutions about this because it's an it's an ongoing process. You know, we're in we're in a process around all of this, and um, but it's very very clear that it's not just climate and and terms of you know we're we're just sort of going to green ourselves up and have get my electric vehicle go plant based. But it's actually about climate justice, and that's a whole nother level of of commitment and engagement which we sh we should be really committing to. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Tanistra. And Tara, there are a few people who are BIPOC Buddhist teachers who are um, authors who write articles. So Kyra Jewel Lingo has a book, um, and Kriti Kanko, who's a climate scientist and also a Zen teacher in Colorado. Um, there are, I mean, maybe I could email you afterwards, but there are a few people who, uh, who are BIPOC Dharma teachers who have written on climate. Um, <clears throat> so there is a question, a comment from someone, and more a comment than a question. I'm a press secretary for the National Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. I'm also the only black woman on the media team in this role at the moment. I have to make the climate crisis urgent and understandable to people, while also framing it so that we and I don't just lose hope. It's frustrating and heartbreaking at times because BIPOC folks are the most affected and least resourced and transactional relationships cause so much harm. I learned a lot from Sebene Selassie. Thank you, Alyssa, for your work.
other comments that folks might have or questions? Yeah, I think if I can just uh, mention that the people versus fossil fuels, which is which is um, which our group is getting behind, is quite indigenous led. Uh, the meetings are often opened and ref referenced by and contexted rather contexted by indigenous um, worldview and how they're holding this process. But I think you know another thing in terms of if one's looking to align and support climate justice is actually getting behind and turning up and listening to how, how different groups organize that are informed. Um, you know, because often like, for example, I just give a, a very short example before Standing Rock, there were some preliminary actions happening in San Francisco. And there was one outside of um, the government, one of the government state buildings and I turned up for this. And um, when I got there, there was a sort of, there was a line of Westerners and they were like, you know, shouting and singing, but they were like shouting, people just trying to get into the building to go to work. And they were like, like kind of like standing at this line, like just sort of like hanging, shouting at the building and, and um, drumming and things. And I, I thought, well, I don't know about this, but anyway, I was sort of standing there with them all and uh, looking at all of this, just trying to see these guys, like trying to scurry into, <laughs> they're just trying to get to work, you know? And then one of the indigenous elders, um, Penny Opal Plant, who I, who I admire enormously. And, and um, she just sort of turned up and she looked at all of this and she just got everyone into a circle. And so what started to happen, rather than people like, like, oh my God, I got to get through this. Uh, she just started to turn it into a circle and then started to create almost like this different world in front of this building by having people come into the middle of the circle. People were doing poetry or speeches or dances, or expression. And that sort of like just that ranting energy became like this strength. You felt the strength. And then you started to notice there were faces at the building, at the, at the windows. So people started to really be interested. And so for me, that was just a very simple, but it was such a powerful teaching about how we tend to go at it sometimes, you know, like, I just, <laughs> or we go like solutions. And I just want, you know, but this sort of it, like what Penny did was bring it into, first of all, a circle, like we're all equally standing here and then into a process. So it was a process, but also into showing there's a different world. You don't have to be in a building looking out a window. You can be in this circle with us. You can listen. You can, there's no pressure. You can, and you know, at Standing Rock, I found the same kind of deep sense of spirituality that were that was and it was a complex picture. There were many things going on, and some of the, the actions weren't really given a lot of um, blessing from the elders, and they went uh, they became went awry really. But there was this deep sense of listening, being listened to. Um, of ceremony, of prayer, every day started with two hours or more of prayer. And, and it was hard, you know, it's freezing cold. <laughs> Going down to the water, offering prayers to the spirit of the waters. 
And over time, you're standing there and you start to feel the water is responding. When you see something in a different way, it starts to come to life and you could feel like, oh, I can feel the spirits of it. I mean, you know, look, before it's just a river. <laughs> so this, this, this is what I'm saying. It's like there's things that we've lost in our culture that we have to be humble <laughs> to listen, yeah, to listen at the feet of those that have been holding this in a very different way and, and so on. And so, um, yeah. Sarah, one question that came in, and excuse me, everyone, as you can see, I'm coughing, I'm not feeling so well. Um, one question that came in is about whether there's a danger in being too engaged in climate activism and that in being too engaged, one might be distanced from one's path as a Buddhist that what we think of as the Buddhist path might be disrupted or the climate activism and the feelings associated with it and the actions might be an obstacle on the path. I'm wondering if you could speak well, I to think that. that's a good question because it, it speaks to me about finding this balance. You know, it's, it's very, you know, sometimes I sort of, um, as as working in in Spain in a few years ago, with pretty pretty like pretty hardcore activists, um, and you know the, at the level of like turning up and locking on and being arrested, and um, it's um, you know and what I my my feeling was as we were going through the retreat was that there was just like there was everything had to be challenged in a way that didn't really allow for a deeper settling. So it started to feel like everything was going, we were going in this trauma pattern all the time. And it gets a little confused between your own personal levels of trauma and how that can be activated by these larger issues. And I, I do think in the, in the purely activist community, without any real deep dharma, there's a certain way that that can really be, be triggered, that, that cycling. And so you're really starting to live out. And, you, and if it's not very conscious, you have to have an other to really project that onto, you know. So it's not to say that that other isn't there, you know, like it's standing where it was highly militarized and it was, it was violent. But you sort of almost add to that by, by your own un, unhealed, kind of um, rage and so on. So I think that there is a way that the spirit, the Dharma practice with activism is a very powerful combo because the Dharma helps not only integrate and land, but it gives, you know, it also gives you permission and understanding that we also still need to work on our interiority. It's not that we can just go out there and you know that we that we the the level of awareness and what we bring to our engagement is just as important as, as the engagement itself. And you know, as I was involved in a very lovely action in London, which was about Barclays Bank, which is one of the major um, contributors to the fossil fuels um, industry. And 
it was just a, in Piccadilly, so it's a very busy part of London. And it was just a Buddhist community, just single file, quietly doing a very slow, mindful walk through this, the busy streets. And that in itself was very powerful. And then just sitting outside the bank and sitting there, and someone was doing a bit of theater action and handing out leaflets, talking to people, and then closing that and walking back. That was the action. So all of that is within our practice, sitting, walking, engaging. There was nothing, there was no locking on or anything. And it just felt like really, it was, it was very powerful just to that, that simple, but it was, that was like an integrative practice, I felt, where you were taking that same practice of walking and sitting, but you were just doing it, doing it on the streets. <laughs> So I think that that has a lot of potential for us as as Dharma practitioners to bring that, you know, to bring it onto the streets. But yeah, for sure, if we get burnt out, overwhelmed, then, you know, the Buddha was both engaged, but he would go on retreats, you know, and the retreats then uh, nourish and help us let go. <laughs> And then we, we can bring, so I think it's this balance, this dance between both um, engagement and in, in, inner, inner resourcing, inner practice. And, and then there are times, of course, when those fuse and, and can fuse very beautifully. One question, Tanisara, that takes up, I think, something that you alluded to earlier is the notion of love as action. Um, I don't know if you said that explicitly, but maybe um, that is what somebody was getting from what you said. And is, is there anything that you have to say about well, it's that something, idea? Yeah, well, I, I've sort of, you know, love's a tricky word in Buddhism. You, know, you get compassion, loving kindness. But I've been, I've been uh, really thinking about this. You know, it's like, you know, there's a lot of divisions, a lot of hate. I've been very activated and can feel that being activated in me, the divisive, hating thing. <laughs> and um, it's, it's, you know, like it's, it's intense. It's intense. And... And you know what I've been, I've been contemplating the Buddha's, um, you know, hatred isn't overcome by hate. Only through, through love, through compassion is hate overcome. So I've been thinking of love. Um, and unfortunately, we have very few English words to, to capture that, the meaning of that, you know, and um, I know other languages have many more different words that have more nuance, but, but as a power, as, as a power, of the heart and that that's inassailable really that um that is both spiritual a spiritual power that there's a spiritual level of love you know you you could call it compassion but compassion traditionally is more resonant with suffering and implies that you know you're compassionately responding but love feels like it's a little subtly less dualistic in its purest form you know, if you if you sort of not really connecting it with romantic love or emotional love or loving someone in particular, and I think it's a bit warmer and more maybe more dynamic and passionate than meta of loving kindness, which can also become almost like a slightly formulaic approach. But it feels like an innate 
quality of the heart itself that we love you know we love particular things particular people but if we can get to that place where we love nature <laughs> we love this planet we love our lives we just love you know we're loving beings essentially and you know there's a lot of complexity that gets in the way of that but if you just sort of get to the essence of living beings you know they, there's there's this beautiful nectar of love and so i've been really considering that this is a real power in this time is to is that we can bring our love of everything our love of our lives of everyone you know just bring that as a motivating force uh, to to this you know to this very fraught territory where there's enormous um hatred and destruction and ignorance and greed uh, that you know to really test out this buddha's teaching <laughs> love overcomes all it seems to be saying <laughs> is that really naive i mean it can be fierce love it can be strength it can be so anyway i'm, I'm just really been excited but thinking about that like a revolution of love rather than a devolution into these old splits and hates that are, seem to be so dominating our news cycles and our world at the moment. You know, people, we, everyone needs love. <laughs> so anyway, I, I'm just sort of playing with that as something really that's nourished, giving me a lot of nourishment to consider in response to this really, truly heartbreaking time we're in. That's beautiful. I love what you just said. Um, <clears throat> we are going to end in a few minutes, but before we do, I wonder if you could briefly say a little bit about Payon. Oh, well, yes, this might have been a mistake to do all of this, but <laughs> partly because I've got so much going on. But, um, you know, coming up to COP26 in Glasgow, I think we were all aware that sort of been following this, the climate story, that it was going to be something of a failure in terms of what was really needed at that moment. And you know, it, as it turned out, it was highly dominated by the interests of the fossil fuel industry. And as we've seen since COP26, there's actually been a doubling down of um, fossil fuel subsidies, um, leasing of lands, um, projects, when in fact the IPCC, the Intergovernmental uh, Climate Change Panels, um, have advocated for an immediate cessation of fossil fuels and, and ramp up a ramping up a transition to renewables, which, was, which is within our reach and government's reach. So it was all of this that was a very disappointing and dreadful moment to realize actually this is like an addiction and, it's, and there isn't a real, there aren't really powers that seem to be in control <laughs> to bring us off away from this cliff edge. It's just in fact, they're doubling down, whether it's political or corporate power. So in response to that, I was talking one morning with our operations manager of Secret Mountain Sangha, which is our platform. And she was um, she was in a hotel seeing her family stuck in, stuck in Oregon. The, it was the fire season here 
in in California in the in the Northwest, and it was she was smoked out. She couldn't get out of her hotel room, and she was talking about the irony of like you know this hotel that her family put in her in had all these posh shops, and it seemed crazy. You know, it was like this moment we were just like this crazy, and we said let's do something, and I wanted to think of a word that the act that the you know, that an acronym that would sort of, because everything gets acronymed in US, that that would actually have a good meaning. And I love the word peon, peon, which is sort of like a peon of joyful voices rising, because my feeling was this is a moment, because we've been so betrayed, really, by, by the powers, whether it's media, government, fossil fuel, whatever, at this moment, it really is now that we, the people, the people having to stand up together with our voices, you know, a, a sense of joyful voices speaking out in love for the earth and to do what we can to protect. So, so this was a climate initiative we began and the acronym stands for People's Alliance for Earth Action Now. And the, our core idea is having small, supporting and growing small local groups that are looking at initiatives near them, uh, interfacing with national and international network of climate activists, and particularly Dharma-orientated climate activists, to build resilience, to inspire action, to bring speakers, education, resources. So we're just in the process of building that as a platform and building a team. Um, our website's about to go live. But you know the, I, the problem with that good ideas is it always turns out to be a lot of work. <laughs> you have to think of the nuts and bolts. But I'm actually quite excited about it, and I really feel like yeah, this is something I really want to put energy into. Um, bringing the Dharma as a resource for our my personal and our collective engagement. Thank you, Tanisara. I wanted you to say something about Payon in part because this event is co-sponsored by Payon. Maybe there isn't a website yet, but there is an initiative and the Dana will be shared with Payon. Um, some of you I know are familiar with the practice of Dana. It is, the word is etymologically related to our word for donation or basically about gift giving, but in Buddhist traditions, it's the very first virtue of the Bodhisattva. It's what allows us to give to those who are in need and also relinquish to some degree from objects of attachment. And in this highly capitalistic world, there's something I find very moving about the whole practice of dana. It's, uh, <clears throat> It's a way of living and engaging that is somehow not caught up in transaction. So Tanisara speaks to us tonight, as with all our teachers, she's not contracted. And we offer this evening freely, but Tanisara needs to buy clothes and buy food and needs to pay her electric bill and Payon needs to support the people who are working on the website and Payon needs to probably file some paperwork with the state to become a 501c3. And um, 
So even as this practice is kind of outside of capitalism, we all pay on to Mr. is caught up in capitalism, which is just to say um, in Buddhist traditions, we don't want to give beyond what feels comfortable. If we regret or resent a gift that's unhelpful for us from a Buddhist perspective, classical Buddhist perspective, and we want to support good work and um, the kind of work that Tanisra is doing. So you will receive a link from BCBS with an opportunity to offer Donna. And in fact, the link is in the chat right now. And I invite you to do so. And Tanisra, I would invite you to close our evening with a brief guided meditation. And also I want to express my gratitude for your sharing tonight and all the work that you've done on these issues and the way that you have shared the Dharma with so much heart and so much engagement and uh, all the work that you're doing. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, William. Uh, it's been such a pleasure. I hope you feel better soon. Thank you, everyone. Uh, let's just dedicate the blessings uh, of this meeting. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's wonderful. We have an opportunity to contemplate the Dharma. We give thanks to all the practitioners and the lineages that have enabled us to do so. And we share and dedicate all blessings from our meeting to the welfare of all and that the blessings, the good energy, the punya may go wherever is needed at this time to heal, to awaken, to soothe, those that are suffering, to protect those that are vulnerable, to overcome the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, and to liberate all. Sababuta nubawena sati soti bawantu te. Awante sabamangalan rakantu sabadevata sabadamma nubawena. Sati Sati Bhavantu Te Bhavantu Sabamangalan Rakantu Sabadevata Sabasanga Nubhavena Sati Sati Bhavantu Te Thank you so much. Blessings, everyone. Hope to see you in person before too long. <laughs>